everybody. Thank you for dialing in. Not dialing in. Because we don't even use like dials for this anymore. Thank you for clicking in. This is episode 12, Cannon Dispatch. This one's with my brother-in-law, Jacob. He's an ex-Navy fighter pilot and a current commercial pilot. Uh, we talk a lot about being a combat fighter pilot and uh, what his career looked like. And we also talked about the transition into commercial um, airline flying and as well as any other thing that he did uh, as far as being a, an instructor for the Navy. Um, we talk about mindset and talk about a lot of different things. Enjoy it. Uh, it's uh, It was just a fun conversation. And uh, I think that for those who might be thinking that they want to be a pilot, uh, whether that's military or civilian, I think it's a really, really uh, just a wealth of information. So I hope you enjoy it. Actually, this is episode 13. I was wrong. Not 12, 13. So Baker's Dozen. We doing it. Okay, here's the episode. Thanks for listening. Ciao. First thing I want to, I think it's really cool to talk about is you're just, just your time flying the F-18, right? Yep. So from what I can, I don't know, from what the stories you've told me to like your missions that you flew, what, which operations did you fly over there? Um, and then which, yeah. And then which, like what ship were you deployed off of? And you know what I mean? Yeah. Yeah. Cool. Um, so 2011 and 12, I did the uh, last two deployments on board the USS Enterprise for the uh, DCOM, that, that old classic ship. And um, we were supporting the troops on the ground in Afghanistan primarily. Uh, flew into Iraq once or twice, but primarily uh, Afghanistan. And um, basically, we're kind of, best way I think to describe it, it's kind of like an airborne 911. Um, we got the guys on the ground, you know, that are out doing patrols, that are... Uh, you know, staying in these forward outposts all over the country. And um, if nothing was going on, nobody's shooting. We were just kind of overhead. We were uh, checking out points of interest that the uh, the Joint Terminal Air Controllers or JTACs on the ground had, uh, seeing what's going on. But uh, most of the time, um, if, we, if we were going to actually end up deploying any munitions and dropping bombs or shooting a gun, it was because our guys were getting shot at. And so, basically, we were their self-defense uh, mechanism to reach out and uh, try to disrupt their attackers, hopefully get them off the battlefield. Um, so, most of the time, it was really rather boring, just hanging out overhead. But uh, a handful of times in those two deployments, we, uh, you know, our guys were getting shot at, and so we put bombs on the ground. Um, usually, it was more of a suppressive fire type of thing to give our guys a chance to reposition or seat cover something like that um but occasionally we could no kidding like see like okay here's the bad guys this is the mortar tube they're firing mortars out of or you know we can see them scurrying around and see their muzzle flashes with our sensors and and we would you know employ on them other times it was hey we're taking fire from this hillside somewhere so we need a bomb on this hillside and we would check and as long as we couldn't see anybody we didn't see any other you know folks around but they're taking fire just putting a bomb on an empty hillside or seemingly empty hillside was enough to, you know, get the shooting to stop and give our guys a chance to, to retreat or, or reposition where they could get some cover. If the, if anything came up like that, like uh, like you're saying, like um, uh, you, you could see on your radars or whatever. Did you guys, you have to ask permission to do stuff like that? Yeah. So um, the ground commander was always responsible for, um. Pretty much asking for munitions and and always for authorizing its release. Um, I didn't do any missions where I was not dropping without uh, what we call a nine line, and it's just a, a form of information that's given to us uh, in close air support, which is basically what we're doing. We're supporting troops on the ground who are close to where we're releasing ordnance, and um, so the ground commander uh, is responsible for anything we drop. And so they have to give us the information about where they want it dropped, how they want it dropped, what they want dropped or shot. And, um, and then we, you know, we provide an extra check to that 
and uh, make sure that the target looks legitimate. We don't see any civilian casualty concerns or anything like that, and then we release it. And um, so, like I said, it was a it was us dropping, you know, to defend the guys on the ground pretty much every time. Um, the only other time uh, employed was uh, a strafing run where we had uh, known IED emplacers that had been previously identified uh, implanting IEDs, and um, and they were on a motorcycle uh, leaving the area, and so we were given authorization to attack them uh, with the gun, and uh, because the gun doesn't risk anybody else around. Like, you have to get hit by the bullets, basically, of the gun to be injured. And so it was the lowest collateral risk weapon we had. And so that's what the ground commander wanted was a, a strafing run. And so that's what we did. We we rolled in, um, aimed at the ground with our, our jet. And the, jet, the, the gun is fixed in the nose of the jet, so you have to aim the jet to aim the bullets. And so... We used the heads-up display in the cockpit to aim it at the target designation on the on the ground. Um, guys on a motorcycle are hard to see with your eyeball uh, at the distance of about a mile that you're shooting from. And so, uh, luckily, I was in a two-seat jet where I had a weapon systems officer in the back seat, and he was able to use our targeting pod, which has zoom. It's a infrared uh, camera um, that he was able to zoom in and get a good clear visual of our target and keep our designation on the target. And then that generates a target in the HUD that I can then line the gun crosshairs up in the HUD, uh, the pipper, uh, onto the target to him before I squeeze the trigger and shoot. Right. So it worked and two less guys on the battlefield that day. Right. The, um, I don't know, one question I want to ask you, but, but first I want to, the the platform that you're yeah. flying, what what it was the F eighteen F eighteen Super Hornet, uh, okay. F model Super Hornet. So F model is the two seat Super Hornet. Okay, and then but you've flown many different, you've flown a, well, you've flown a few different configurations because that that aircraft is kind of well can configure it for. So they can put a lot of different ordnance on it, um, but primarily it's either configured to go out and do the mission we were doing where like we had mostly bombs doing air to ground, but we would always carry at least one air to air missiles for self-defense okay. just in case another country sent some fighters up or something. It's not like the Taliban had fighters, but if some other country sent another airplane up or, you know, some country sent an airplane out towards the carrier, we could, you know, go intervene. Right. Um, but primarily we were configured for air to ground. Um, we have air to air configurations, but it's not something we carried uh, in 2011, 2012, when I was going to Afghanistan, it just wasn't needed. Um, and then the other configuration was a tanker, um, because at the boat, you got lots of airplanes coming back from missions. They may be at low fuel states and may have a hard time getting aboard the ship for whatever reason, might need to get some gas. And so we always had a tanker airborne, um, up until the very end of the day, basically. And then the last person to recover at the end of the day is always the tanker. So the last tanker of the night, there's nobody to really save save that person. They got to get aboard. That pilot's got to got to make it aboard that night because they're the last plane. They're the last plane. Yeah. Yeah. Who's gonna Who's gonna tank the tanker? You know what I mean? <laughs> nobody. <laughs> no one. The is usually. Would you say sometimes I don't know is the most skilled pilot a lot of times the tanker or is that not necessarily true? Um, they don't let anybody on their very first like. 10 weeks or so of deployment flies the tanker. Usually it's towards the end of your first deployment before they let you start doing tanker uh, missions. Um, sometimes it would be a little bit earlier, you know, or a little bit later, depending on the pilot skill. But um, it's not something that the brand new Nugget pilots did. Okay, so you had a You had, you had, had a, a little experience and, experience. you know, you know, probably close to 100 traps before you started doing tanker hops. Um. How long, because you said a lot of times you would like kind of like wait overhead or whatever. Yeah. How long, how long are we talking like waiting overhead? And then what, what does that look like? So you, yeah. you take off from the carrier and then you, you're trying to go in country wherever that is. And yeah. I'm, do you meet a tanker on your way there? Yeah. So, um, and that's an, that's an Air Force tanker. Yeah. So that's an Air Force tanker. The Air Force has kind of mind boggling numbers. Um, I think every day the, 
the planes from the ship, the fighters from the ship, the F-18s, were taking on board over 75,000 pounds of fuel. Might have been over 100,000 pounds of fuel. I forget the numbers. From Air Force tankers. And those Air Force tankers were flying all the way from like Al-Udeed or uh, Qatar, some of the bases in the Middle East on the Persian Gulf. They were flying out over the North Arabian Sea, up over Pakistan to get into Afghanistan and meet us. And they were flying eight, 10 hour flights. We were flying six and a half to eight hour flights. And we would take off from the ship, fly for an hour, hour and a half to get into Afghanistan, uh, flying over the, the border with Pakistan. We would go to the tanker, get some gas, and then we would hang out overhead talking to somebody on the ground, just you know, looking at points of interest they had until we got a call or didn't. And then when we needed gas again, we'd go back to the tanker again, get more gas, go work with guys on the ground again for a while. And then we'd usually go back to the tanker one more time and then head home. Um, occasionally somebody might get extended and stay for an extra cycle or something like that. But usually we'd hit a tanker three times um, in a six and a half, seven hour flight uh, to get gas. Man, I'm like a mat. I'm like imagining right now. That's a that's a that's a flying gas station. Yep. That and you're like obviously you have comms with them. You oh yeah. You know what I mean? You have comms with them. It's kind of like hey, welcome to welcome to Shell. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like, they uh, man, it's been a while. Uh, Whisper was one of their call signs, and I forget the other one. But uh, we all hoped that we would get the uh, the KC10 because they had a nice soft basket on the end of a long hose, mm-hmm. which is the the style of um, refueling drogue that we had that we used at the ship when uh-huh. the F-18s were configured as okay. tankers. Yeah. It was a lot more forgiving. The uh, KC-135s, which are almost 70-year-old airplanes now, um, at least 50 or 60, uh, those have a really short hose. It's really stiff and hard with a metal basket. And um, you were always worried you were going to mess that up and get your probe on your jet ripped off. And then you were going to have to divert and land in like Kandahar or Kabul, which yeah. nobody wanted to do. We always wanted to, you know, go back to our own bunk, our own, yeah. you know, bed back on the ship. So um, those were more stressful. But um, yeah, you'd you'd pull up and get gas and uh, take on twelve thousand pounds or so of gas each time. Um, so in a day, your three refuelings plus what you took off with, you'd burn forty five, fifty thousand pounds of gas per jet per day. On your on your trips to Afghanistan, holy smokes! Um, yeah, I mean enough to run your car at home for like years, basically. In in like a in like a and you'd burn that in one flight with one jet. Holy pee! <laughs> yeah, war is very expensive, extremely. Yeah, expensive. it's more expensive. I mean, that's why that's why the our budget, our defense yeah. budget, is always the highest. Mm-hmm. You know, and it's why we're one of the few countries in the world that do the things we do. Yeah. Because it is crazy expensive. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, you go do the thing, and then after that, and then, all right, so, I mean, obviously, I work, I'm an air traffic controller, so I know that whole aspect yeah. of it. So, returning to the ship mm-hmm. after flying around. By the way, there's no pooping, right, while you're, while you're in the cockpit, right? There's uh, peeing. There's, there's, there's plenty of peeing. That's pretty easy for guys, at least. Um, there's a method for girls, but it's pretty easy for guys. Um, and, and I definitely did that. My philosophy was if I ever have to eject over hostile territory, I want to hit the ground well hydrated and ready to run. So I consumed about a three-liter Camelback of uh, water with some, uh, some little caffeine tablet, elixir tablets in it while I was flying. Um, and so consequently, I'd you know, fill up a couple of piddle packs. Um, but I was very careful what I ate on flights cause, uh, <laughs> I did not want to be the guy. I've heard stories of people trying to poop into a gallon size Ziploc or like pooping in their gear and like landing and shutting down and stripping naked on the flight deck and throwing their flight suit overboard. I've heard stories like that. I wanted to make sure I was never that yeah, guy. You, yeah, you did. <laughs> I did not want, want to be. <laughs> you wanted those to just be stories. stories. I wanted to be those. Those to be legends and myths. Yeah. Not, not my story. <laughs> that would always be. That would always be my fear. Yeah. You know, you're in the middle of yeah. doing something. You're like, all right, you're getting all this down. Okay, you're in here. Oh, oh, oh. I mean, uh, yeah. Hey, bro, can you can you pick yeah. this one up, man? Yeah. I gotta go. Yeah. 
Biggest fear, probably the chance of screwing up and hurting somebody innocent on the ground. Um, second biggest fear, probably ending up on the ground myself uh, over there. Third biggest fear, probably, yeah, having to poop in the flight seat. <laughs> <laughs> All right, so uh, having to return, and then you're, you're returning, obviously, um, flying for six to eight hours, yep. whatever. You're exhausted. For sure. Me- yeah. Well, I would say mentally. I mean, mentally, you, you could be. Um, it really depended on the flight. You okay. weren't always. And uh, it depended a little bit on, you know, how well you'd slept the night before, whether you're coming back late at night or maybe coming back just before sunset. Like, okay. there were a few factors. Yeah. Did you, do you, do you have a preference as far as like you preferred landing on a ship in the daytime versus landing in the nighttime? So funny enough, I actually kind of like the nighttime better. You got set up on a nice long straight in approach to the ship, mm-hmm. whereas in the daytime, you'd come in overhead and you'd go into a break and just do a visual pattern. And um, so with that, um, you weren't on this nice long electronically guided straight in approach where you're all nice and stabilized out at range. You you came in fast and low overhead the ship went into a tight high g turn and then rolled out with about 13 to 16 seconds behind the ship to get yourself all stabilized and land okay. so to me it was actually a little more challenging to do it uh during the day uh versus night so i think we've talked about it before i think you you mentioned something about yeah like using your instruments yeah and the instruments don't lie to you, but then whenever you're having to sort of like when you're in the daytime, when you're looking at the instruments, but then you're also looking at the actual horizon. Yep. So you're looking at, the, was it called the false horizon? I don't know. Well, you, you've got an artificial horizon that, okay. in the, in the yeah. cockpit, um, but really most of the time we're using the, the heads-up display, and okay. it's giving you an artificial horizon as well. Um, but the challenge is there's just the – every parameter is changing all the way through that turn. You, you don't really ever get fully stabilized, hardly, you know, maybe the last few seconds. But you come in fast, you're slowing down, you're putting out your landing gear, you're dropping your flaps. By the time you do all that, you're already, like, into the turn to line up behind the ship. Then you're rolling out, reducing your bank as you roll out behind the ship. And now you probably just got on to the right speed just before that, and you're getting slowed down, you know, and stabilizing at that speed. Um, the boats, you know, moving away from you, you're looking outside, you're doing this whole approach visually. You're not using all the, there's a little bit of electronic guidance, but not nearly as much as when you're stabilized out of range. And the instruments are really accurate these days. You know, I mean, we've got drones that can land on the ship. We've, we've done that testing. Like it works. Um, there's auto land systems. So when you have all the electronic aids that you have at night that you use to do a stabilized, steady approach, it's slower. You can't recover as many aircraft as fast doing it that way, but it's it's more controlled and more stabilized, so it's easier, in, in my opinion. Um, it's more fun to do it during the day, but it's more of a challenge. Mm. Um, can you recall the first time ever landing in it on, on an aircraft carrier? Um. I don't necessarily remember the first landing a ton. Um, I'm sure I was really nervous. And that would be on a T-45. That right? was in a T-45, yeah, the single-engine trainer. You were probably going that out was of off the coast. No, that was actually out of San Diego. For oh, me. okay, uh, cool. I went to the West Coast for that. Um, the boat was down off the coast of northern Mexico in the Pacific. Um, I don't really remember the first trap so much. I remember the first cat shot. It is such an acceleration that um, I think I just kind of, like, I sounded like a kid on a roller coaster as I went off the catapult because it just gives you such a kick in the pants. Um, was that there as well? The same yeah, thing? so like we, we took off from the land. We flew out in a formation together, went in, did my trap. Um, I think we, we did a couple touch and goes first where okay. we had to hook up. And then they said, okay, you can go hook down. We trapped. We taxi around. They launch us back off, and we do another couple traps for the day before we head back to the beach. And um, – yeah, the catapult was really the more memorable part. Like, that was just a total, like, kick in the butt. So, I've been catted twice. Yep. You know, in a cod. Yeah, so, so facing backwards. So facing backwards, which yeah. sucks. But yep. whatever, it's still a rush. Oh, yeah. Right? It's one, yeah. Of those, it's one of those weird feelings where, at least for me, it was like, 
it felt like it lasted like 20 seconds, but I know it only lasted like two to three. Yeah, like you max. Know? Yeah, yeah, it's really fast. And uh, so, I mean, obviously I was just writing and yeah. holding on to my yeah. junk, right? Yeah. But for you, as a person who's piloting an aircraft, so now after you're launching, you're responsible for controlling that yeah that momentum that you have now you know what i mean so so in the daytime that's not a as big of a deal because you can see you know when the weather's good you can see the horizon yeah. you know right away you're climbing um and we actually we trim the plane up so that when we catapult we have our left hand is pushing the throttle all the way forward to make sure it stays all the way forward but our right hand we put up on a little like handle it's called by oh the windscreen. shit handle right yeah, oh shit or a uh, the towel rack you know it yeah, looks yeah. like a little towel rack hanging up there on the side yeah, of the yeah. frame so you just grab that the plane's trimmed up because with that rapid acceleration if you don't have good visibility out in front of you your body actually like makes you think you're tumbling backwards and going super nose high and so the natural reaction if you didn't have good visibility outside would be to push the nose forward as you came off the catapult oh. and so we actually trim the plane up and just hold on to that handle and you come off the end, the nose naturally nose rotates up. And then as soon as you, you – there's kind of a jolt when you come off the end of the catapult because everything releases. And you actually – the rate of acceleration slows so much that even though you're still accelerating, it feels like you've slowed down once Holy it releases. Smokes. And so then you let go of the handle and bring your hand back to the stick and fly it away. Um, now at night, it's a lot stranger because on a dark night over the ocean – there's lights on the deck a little bit, but you go off the end and all of a sudden it is pitch black and you get that little it's like you're flying deceleration. Space. It's, yeah, it's it's weird at night. So, but same procedure, just yeah, you just yeah, just stranger <laughs> because you, you you're you're yeah. not able to trust your senses. Yeah, you point. really have to rely on the instruments at that point. Huh? Was there was there any time in your initial in your initial training where it was difficult to to tell you to remind yourself, okay, I have to rely on these instruments. Like, like it seemed like it was unnatural, but you knew that you had to rely on them. Like, was it difficult to stop not, trusting yeah. your senses, but trust? These, not, not with the carrier operations, um, yeah. catapult recovery, any of that. Um, most of those issues came more in formation mm. because you'd be flying in formation, and if you're the wingman. If you're in the clouds or at night in instruments or anything like that, your horizon becomes your lead. And so you're just scanning the lead's aircraft. And if lead rolls into a bank, you like your body feels something change, but you don't know for sure what changed because you're just flying welded to his wing, keeping your your reference points exactly the same. And so as the as the lead rolls into a bank, you just match whatever it takes. You input, you, you manipulate your controls to stay in that exact same position. And so it can start to throw you for a loop after a while, being in the clouds and flying in formation. So that's really where that, that becomes an issue. You bring up, all right, you bring up a thing here. So you're flying in formation, mm -hmm. right? Is there any kind of, um, I don't know, any kind of like, software or radar or whatever that you guys are connected to the lead that way you when you know that he's turning like your aircraft's going to turn kind of like automatically with it or is that all visual nope that's all visual oh man so that's I mean, different occasionally than I they may give you a little heads up on the on our uh radio like we'll, we'll always have the second radio tuned up to have interflight communications and so occasionally if they think you need it or you know, they're doing something that is maybe unexpected. They'll give you a little, little sugar call, give you a heads up that they're they're about to turn or they're rolling out of a turn or they're accelerating or something like that. But most of the time now, you're just you're just staying in position. So holy smokes! It's a, I I would imagine that in the nighttime. I mean, I know a lot of places that I've been stationed. What we were, we don't allow formation flying mm -hmm. at night too much, and maybe that's why it's hard to. A little more dangerous for you yeah, guys. Yeah, it's, you know it's a mean? lot harder and more dangerous for sure. One of the scariest flights of my whole career, I think, was the first time I flew a four-ship, like, division flight. It was probably my 
fifth or sixth total flight in the F-18 uh, when I was going through F-18 training. And basically you got like two flights to get comfortable in the F-18, I think, if I remember correctly. And then you got one flight daytime, just two ship section formation. You got a nighttime one, I believe. And then you, you went out a, I think a daytime four ship. And then you went out nighttime four ship. And you were the aircraft commander. You didn't have any instructor in the back seat with a stick. You had an instructor in the lead aircraft and in dash three, or sorry, yeah, dash three. But dash two and dash four were students, you know, and it was it was the first flight, I think, in your whole career you had done night division. And you're out there by yourself in an F-18 that you've flown like five times before. That was a scary flight. Out over the Atlantic, dark, no horizon, flying around, no night vision goggles, just using the lights of the aircraft and maneuvering out there. Did you ever, at any time when you were flying, especially an F-18, mm-hmm. um, I mean, we've talked about it, flying an F-18 is like flying an X-Wing like from Star Wars. <laughs> you know, like yeah. for us people who will never do that, right? it's literally, for now at least, yeah, and for the longest time, when we had a little more advanced stuff, but still, it's like the closest we we have to like a spacecraft. Right. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like it's so it's so cool. Has there been any time when you started flying where you were like, whenever you were flying, you had this sort of realization like five years ago, I was like, you know, playing PlayStation. Like, I wasn't responsible for yeah. anything, and now I'm a, the pilot in, in command of a multi-million dollar air... You know, any yeah. of those kind of, like, existential things ever happened to you? It happened to me while controlling airplanes. <laughs> yeah. Um, I mean, a, a flight kind of like I just talked about with that night division, I mean, that was definitely one I'm going, holy cow, I don't think I'm... I don't feel like I'm ready for this, but they've told me I am, and so... I'm doing it, and I mean, I gotta, I gotta make it work, basically. Like, yeah. you know, like I'm just gonna have to do it. Hopefully, <laughs> I don't screw it up. You know, like it's what I'm doing right now. Yeah, it's what, I, it's what um, you gotta do. Yeah, I gotta make it happen. Um, yeah, there's, there's, there's some times like that, um, and, and I think really most, of, most of the hardest kind of flights where I was like, wow, I can't believe I'm doing this, were probably solo formation flights when I was still you know, just a pretty junior pilot in the Navy. And there's just a, there's a very much a heightened risk when you're flying in close, you know, proximity to another airplane intentionally. So, um, the Navy definitely pushes you to do some things before you probably think you're ready, but that's how you kind of have to, that's how you grow. You grow. Yeah. And then after you did it and after you landed, right. And then you, Went and wiped your butt or whatever. Yeah, you know, then it like, wasn't quite as scary the next time. Yeah. You know, still, yeah, more still com- uncomfortable, still uncomfortable, but not quite as scary. But you had a lot, little more confidence in so yourself. Like, okay, I can, I can probably do it. Yeah. I did it last time. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Yeah, I can replicate it again. Yeah. Uh, dude, I want to. I'm gonna grab that bottle of wine. You oh, want? Do you want to? Actually, no. Here's, you, this is the last of it. <laughs> that's the last of it. Yeah. Well, then never mind. <laughs> I guess I've got some beers in the fridge right there. I'm good on the beers. I think I like the I like the, I like keeping it. There's there's some box wine in there. Is it, <laughs> is it already open? It's already open. Yeah. Where's it at? It's in the in the cabinet under the coffee uh, coffee bar. All right, hang on. All right. Uh, left left cabinet. There you go. You you had the better stuff first, so. Real classy around here, I know. Yeah. We're sitting out in the garage taping this. Well, you guys, okay, you have to explain the whole thing. We're yeah, okay, so it's not really the, I mean, it's a garage, but it's not currently a garage. It's a little bit cooler than It's an airplane factory that also has a lot of stuff stored in it, but um, it does does have an airplane under construction in here, so it makes it a lot cooler. What, and what kind of air, what kind of airplane is it? So, building a uh, Zenith... 750 cruiser um it's a little two-seat side-by-side high-wing aircraft um all metal uh very traditional type of construction um 
it's uh, it's a pretty simple, pretty rugged airplane that um, I'll be able to <coughs> teach my kids in. That me and my family, you know, one other person at a time, will be able to go have adventures in. It's uh, economical to operate. Not nearly as cool as an F-18, but <laughs> cool by the fact that I'm able to build it myself over the course of several years. And I think we're still and, waiting uh, on the F-18 kit. You know yeah, you know? that F-18 kit's probably going to be a little out of my price range. And uh, I don't know when it's going to be come a, coming out. It might be a while. But uh, but this will do in the meantime. Can, uh, can't pull as many Gs or uh, or do sustained inverted flight or anything like that. But oh, yeah. It, but right. it'll work. Pulling Gs. Yeah. All right. Or how about breaking the sound barrier? Yeah. Breaking the sound barrier is a huge letdown, at least in the F-18. Really? Yeah. It's a number. Like, nothing changes in the plane. The plane is so smooth and so, like, control. It's fly-by-wire. So, like, no, the flight controls always basically feel the same. They're hydraulically, like, boosted flight controls that are controlled by computers. So, when you do stuff with the flight controls, you're not really, when you do stuff with the stick and and rudder, you're not really doing stuff with the flight controls. You're just telling the airplane which way you want it to go. And then the flight control computers decide which combination of aileron, rudder, you know, right. elevator, flaps, slats, whatever that it wants to throw out. And it does that to give you the your desired end state. So really, like maybe the first time that you realize you broke the speed of sound, you kind of like look down your gauge, and you're like, oh, no shit. Like, look at yeah, that. like, oh, cool. hey, look at that. Cool. I'm, I'm, look, I went supersonic I'm going, today. Yeah, I'm going faster than yeah. I can yell. Yeah. Right? Yeah. <laughs> but I was out over the ocean at probably like 20,000 feet, and you, you can't tell. You can't, yeah. There's, there's no reference. It's way cooler to go like Mach, you know, 0.8 at... 200 300 feet over the desert or through the mountains that's way more fun you than going that? supersonic that we do yeah dude see again that's like so the, that stuff is that's fun. like the x-wing scene from star oh, wars yeah. you know what i mean flying through the sierra or like nevada the Millennium falcon going that's oh, what yeah. that is yeah flying through the sierra nevada like below the ridge lines and like constantly having to roll into a bank to like stay over the creek and not hit the you know, hill in front of you. There's probably some, there That's probably some fun. fly fishermen. Down oh yeah. There. We, we saw some fishermen on the Creek actually. They, I would, I, so one day in my life, I want to be the fly fisherman on the Creek when the F 18 comes roaring over my head. Like that would be super cool to me. But I was the guy in the F-18 overhead, and I saw the fly fishermen on the creek. That poor guy, you ruined his trip. He probably didn't catch a, like a single fish. If he was mean? a Patriot, he loved that moment. <laughs> he, he, he probably got if a If he was a liberal commie, yeah, not so much. I probably ruined his trip. But if he was a Patriot, he loved right, it. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to go with the stereotype. I'm going to say that he had, he had a raging boner the whole time. You know what I mean? Okay. That's what I'm going to go with. All right. Um, all right, so... Uh, F-18. So the other platforms that you flew, uh, well, that you've flown like it, in your life. We'll go with military first. Yeah. So I know there was, you flew T-34? I did, yeah. I flew those the last, well, actually they were around for a while after that. But um, yeah, I flew the T-34 as the initial trainer in the Navy. Um, simple, solid, reliable. Box line, I'm not, I'm not mad at it. Okay, That's all good. I'm saying. Good. Well, there's plenty of that. Yeah. <laughs> um, the T-34 was was a good trainer. Um, wasn't perfect, but it was it was a good trainer. Uh, flew in that, then went to the T-45 in Meridian, Mississippi, for the jet training. Um, fun aircraft. Um, it's got its pluses, got its minuses, but it's still out there doing the work. Um, then went to the F-18. When I finished that, uh, I went to Corpus Christi for an instructor tour in the T-6 and uh, spent four years down there. With um, a dual-seater turboprop. Yeah, it was the replacement for the T-34. So turboprop, single engine, tandem, uh, but a, a lot, probably a little bit uh, less robust than the T-34. Certainly more expensive, but for a pilot, more comfortable, faster, uh, had pressurization, ejection seats, so you had an ice out. Should the student royally screw up, you could pull the handle, or if the engine quit or whatever, you could punch out. Um, then that was a really fun tour. Um, teaching people is not easy, especially at the primary level of training, um, but it's super rewarding when you see the light bulb go off. And um, in the Navy, really, they make that a fun tour. They, they give you the keys to the car and go, in a fuel card, and you go, 
here, go train these students. And, uh, you know, once you get them far enough along in training, you can take them on the road for the weekend and we'll pay for your hotel and your food and you can go on a trip and, and do training on the way out there on Friday, hang out and do, do something fun on Saturday, take a break and then fly home on Sunday and get some more training done. So, um, had, had multiple fun trips doing that. Um, later in that tour, I got to train new instructors who were coming in. Um, so guys who are coming, coming back from kilos, P8s, um, not a lot of jet guys end up going to do uh, T6 primary training. Um, because of all the formation training we do in the jet community, um, the T45 training community and the F-18 training community, they need a lot of instructor pilots okay. because you always have to have an instructor in a jet. And then in a lot of those flights, you have one instructor in one jet and you have a student with another instructor in another jet. So when you get to the jet training, a lot of times you need two instructors to train one student. Whereas in the primary level of training, it's always one instructor for one student. And so um, the jet community just doesn't have enough pilots to be able to let many F-18 pilots go back and teach the primary level. So um, I was basically the only Navy uh, jet pilot um, or junior officer jet pilot, like 03 and below, lieutenant or below, um, training new students down there while I was there. Um, but it was a ton of fun. And, uh, and because the T-6 was still pretty new as a Navy trainer, um, having the experience with ejection seat aircraft was, was helpful. And it was also helpful for the students, I think, to be able to ask questions about what it was like to fly jets when they're trying to make a decision about what they might want to fly. So it was a fun tour. Uh, I got to have a lot of input and um, into the future of my replacements, and and I got to send several of my students onto jets, and so you know it was really cool to train my replacement essentially as I transitioned out of the navy. And then after that, you went to the T six. Yeah, after Again, that, uh, I went to T six is in a different spot in Pensacola. Um, that was close to my hometown and um, the area that we wanted to live in long term. And um, so I was able to get a reserve job there uh, as I transitioned out of the Navy active duty and went to the airlines. And um, there I, I taught the weapon systems officers or naval flight officers. Um, in the T-6 there, those guys were going to, and girls were going to P-8s and to um, F-18s and to E-2s. And so I got to train all them. And then... I reactivated for about a year of active duty there uh, back in the T-45, which I hadn't flown in like 10 years um, since I was a student. Now I get to fly it as an instructor, um, which was actually, oddly enough, where I had the worst emergency I've had yet in an aircraft and certainly the worst in the Navy where I lost the only engine we had uh, in the T-45 uh, on a cross-country training trip there. So um, that, was, that was interesting. Luckily, the engine restarted, so we landed safely. But uh, certainly thought I was going to have to punch out of an airplane that day and was not looking forward to that possibility. I remember you telling the story, though. I just think it's really – can you tell the story? Sure. Um, so we'd had one of those good deal weekend cross-country trips. I had the student that I'd trained you know, earlier on, and, and now we we're going to go on the road. And uh, We'd gone out to – I think we'd gone to Colorado for the weekend. Um, got to go meet my sister out there and go hiking. And um, – on the way back, we'd done a fuel stop in uh, Fort Worth, and we had left Fort Worth, headed back to Pensacola, and we were on our climb up to cruise. Uh, we were going through 37,000 feet. Thankfully, a nice clear blue sky day. We could see the ground from 37,000 feet, and all of a sudden, we heard a pop and felt a little pressure change. I thought it was just cabin pressurization, which wasn't good, you know, but not, not the end of the world. We would have just began a descent. Um, and... As I looked down at the gauges, I realized, no, like, and I started to feel the airplane decelerate and realized we are losing thrust. Like the engine is, something's wrong with the engine. And um, my first thought was there are lots of airliners below us because we're 100 miles east of Dallas uh, at 37,000 feet. So I need to clear out the airspace below me because we are coming down. Um, the air's thin up there. You just can't hang out up there with no thrust. So we, we let the nose start dropping. I jumped on the radio, made, made a mayday call, and um, Fort Worth started giving us vectors to a uh, divert uh, airport, in, uh, an emergency field. And um, the student did a great job pulling up the checklist and, um, and for the engine failure. 
And uh, by the time I finished the radio call, we had you know definitely identified the uh, the engine's done. It's not working right now. Um, it's already well below its idle uh, limits. And so we ran the checklist and we made the decision to wait till we got down below 25,000 feet. So we had thicker air, uh, gives you a better chance of getting combustion and the engine starting. So we waited, kept our speed up. We were pointed at our emergency field. We could see it out in the distance about 30 miles away. And um, luckily when we attempted a restart at like 24, 23,000, it relit. And so we just kept it down at a low power setting. We didn't want to stress it or make it work hard. We had plenty of altitude, and so we just basically continued our glide down and landed. Um, but uh, that was the closest I came to thinking, man, I'm going to have to pull that handle and punch out today. And I didn't want to do that. I was, I trusted the seat, and I, I was not fearing for my life, but I didn't really want to lose like a half inch or more of my height. Um, and, uh, and, and I didn't want to do that to my back. It just sounded painful. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, yeah. So thankfully, it relit and we landed. It's cool though. Like you, as they say, you always you fall back always to your level of training. Yeah, you always do. So a lot of times too, especially within your within your um, line of work there, like people can think things are like, oh, I don't know, I got to study this, and why am I doing these drills? Yeah. But there's a reason why because mm-hmm. I can imagine, which maybe I'm wrong, but I can imagine that when you're doing that. You're having to talk to air traffic control, you have to go through checklists, and you're having to also use rational common sense. Yeah, you got to use know? some critical thinking and use yeah. common sense. And, and, and you have to have a cool in. head. Yeah, you can't freeze up. You got to do stuff. Like, things are going to happen whether you do something or not. Like, yeah. gravity exists whether you react to it or not. Yeah. So, the plane's coming down one way or another. How are you going to handle it? Right. <laughs> you know? So I think that's, I think it's a, I think it's an amazing story, too. Like it's just it's it's cool, yeah. You, obviously, you put it on down. You you know you put it on the ground. You kiss the ground. Yep. You know what I mean, you <laughs> the legs were shaking when, yeah. we, when we rolled to a stop. Yeah, yeah. Break. Probably, I think you adrenaline probably, was just surging. Got a taxi to the nearest airport. Uh-huh. You drank a half bottle of whiskey when you <laughs> when you finally got through the terminal. You know what I mean? Like you're like yeah, you're like, yeah. Whew, done. Yeah. Going home, man. Um, so. There's that. And then now you're an airline pilot. Yep. Before that, um, as far as wanting to be a pilot, when you when you were younger, yeah. right? It, it was something that was always that you were always interested in. And then how did you like start out doing that? You know what I mean? Yeah. Um, I don't remember like first thinking, I want to be a pilot. That's what I'm going to do. Um, but I always loved things with motors and wheels and wings and boats and all that kind of stuff. Um, you know, as a kid, as a typical, uh, you know, average boy, I guess, growing up. And, um, so I, uh, I got my first air ride in a small airplane, um, sometime in middle school with a friend from church. Um, I say friend, mentor. He's about 15 years older than me. Um, he was in his I guess late 20s at that time, and he was a business jet pilot, um, but also a broker, like selling and managing aircraft, and um, he took me up in a little, really small little airplane, a little two-seat kit-built airplane, and um, we went low and fast over the water in the bay, we did a loop, uh, we did some aileron rolls, just had a really fun little flight, and then I got to do a couple more flights with him over the next year or so, and um, I ended up... Uh, I had learned a little bit of basic website design. This was like, what, mid, mid-90s, I guess? Uh, maybe late 90s. And um, I ended up building his company's first website, just really super simple website, and um, in exchange for some flight lessons. And it was kind of during that time I decided, yeah, this is what I want to do for a living. And um, I really kind of thought more about doing what he did, like being a small business owner, entrepreneur, fly some cool business jets, and have your own small business. But I needed a way to pay for that. And um, I needed a way to pay for college. And so I started looking at service academies, ROTC scholarships, stuff like that. That's probably the best option. And um, Navy gave me a scholarship. And so I thought it was a cool opportunity to get the training I needed and serve my country all at the same time. Um, you know, 9-11 had happened my sophomore year of high school. So um, that was certainly on my mind as I was you know, making those decisions. So 
that's how it all kind of came together. And nice. Here I am today. So. And you now, yeah, now you're an airline pilot. Yep. You fly Airbuses. I uh, started out on that. I'm on the 737 now. Okay. I'm Boeing 737. Um, they're both good airplanes. They're different in their design philosophy and cockpit. Um, there's things I like about both. Um, from a comfort perspective as a pilot, the Airbus has a nice, comfortable cockpit that's larger and quieter. Um, so it's really nice in that aspect. But they're both good airplanes. Um, I just, for seniority and... Um, some of the routes and destination that I wanted to do, I, I switched over and tried out the 737 for a while, and that's where I'm at now. So. Okay. As for um, as for advice mm-hmm. that you would give somebody, you know, even Andrew, mm-hmm. right? Somebody, somebody like Andrew, or even even that's older than Andrew in mm-hmm. their 20s or whatever, mm-hmm. as far as advice you you could give them, as for, if they wanted to get into flying, yeah, what what route would you push them? So it really depends on what your your in couple could depends on a couple of things. Um, one, it depends on your in state goal. Um, you know, where do you want to be 20, 30 years from now? Um, it also depends on your current situation and resources. I mean, if you can just afford to go to flight school and start building hours and, and learn to fly. Um, certainly go do that, you know, and see, first of all, whether you really like it or not. Um, it's a big commitment to go to flight training, um, whether you do it as a military or civilian. To get the hours and experience you need to make it a career, it's years of hard work and training to get there. Um, and it requires sacrifices. So those sacrifices may be academic. They may be, you know, work-wise to raise the money. They may be... Um, you know, a combination of that and physical, if you're, you know, focused more on the military flying. Um, flying an airplane, you get an always changing office view that, you know, can't be beat. Uh, the best corner office and the best sky, you know, high rise building in the world doesn't beat my office view in the airplane of the 737 mm-hmm. or my office view from the cockpit of an F 18. Or from a Cessna 172 teaching at a flight school. Like, your view is always changing. Now, the more places you fly, the more the view changes. But even if you're just in the local area, you're not at a fixed point like that skyscraper. So, you know, the the biggest CEO in the world doesn't have as good of an office view as I do. And um, so that is certainly an aspect I like about my job. Um, but there's sacrifices. I mean, the point of airplanes in general is to go places. And so you're going to be away from home uh, when you do the job, and you're going to be on the road, um, certainly in the military. Now, if you do it in the military, you're going to be gone for longer stretches of time and then home for longer stretches of time. If you do it in the airlines, well, you're going to be gone almost every week for a few days. Um, you, you know, It's pretty easy to be home for a week or two on a regular basis in the airlines, but if you're home for a week or two, then it probably means you're also gone for a week or two before or after that. So... Um, you know, airplanes go places. And so that's both a plus and a minus of the job. If you love to travel, it's kind of a plus. Mm -hmm. But at the same time, I love my family and love to be home with them. So it's both a plus and a downside. Um, Do you think the military is always like as a great option for those who want to be? It's always a great option um, for a couple of reasons. One, the training you get is unparalleled. Like, you're not going to get better flight training. Um, two, flight training is super expensive. And so to have somebody else totally foot the bill um, is awesome. Now, you pay for that in other ways, right? Because you go through military flight training. You owe the, the military years of your life. Um, so you do pay for it. Um, but you don't pay for it with cash up front. If you fell out of it, you don't have to pay it back. If you develop a medical condition that keeps you from flying, you don't have to pay it back, you know, in the military. The military, you know, they might make you stay in and do another job, or if you're not even qualified for that, they just let you out and there's no bill. If you can't afford to play, pay for civilian flight training and you take out a loan, you know, which you can do, it's, there's loans out there to do it, 
But if you take out tens of thousands of dollars of loans for civilian flight training, and then all of a sudden you can't hold a first class medical certificate, which allows you to get paid to be a pilot, now you can't use what you spent all that money and now have debt for. How are you going to pay that back? You know, so um, I've I've never been a fan of student loans and debt in any way, shape, or form. You know, for any degree or anything. So uh, the cost of civilian flight training, unless you have a connection to get it paid for or get it cheaper, is is a risky option. Yeah, pretty steep. Yeah. So huge payback if it all works out. I mean, the pay is good when you get to a major airline, but there's a lot of hard work that comes before that, and there's no guarantees. You know. Wow. No, you're you're definitely the type of person though that like when whenever we're always talking about anything aviation related mm-hmm. or any anything like that, you're you can tell that. Well, at least for me, I feel like you're the type of person that found something that you really like yep. to do and then you know that that thing that really gives you pleasure yeah. and then it in turn rewards you you know and your family for the way yeah. that you know what I mean everything yeah so I, I feel like that you you chose well yeah you know it is it is a fun and great career if you like it yeah um, there are pilots out there who continue to do it just because they've already made it this far and the pay is good, but they don't love it. Yeah. Like I, I go to, I do fly with guys at the airline sometime who like can't wait to retire. And like, while the idea of having lots of free time off is appealing to me, um, you know, I, I could see myself staying all the way till the mandatory retirement age if I had enough, which I should have enough seniority at the airlines to have a really easy schedule. And the money is going to be really good. It's like, well, I enjoy what I do. So you're going to give me a great paycheck and I'm going to have a flexible schedule because I'm a senior enough in my job by then yeah. that I could like almost work part time for a nice paycheck. Yeah. And but when I do go to work, I'm doing something I enjoy, yeah. you know, whereas other guys are just like still doing it and haven't retired yet because they want to increase their retirement account before they retire. Right. And like. You know, it's like, that's, yeah, that, that's that shouldn't nice be the reason for, like right. you do it. Like there's a lot of sacrifices to get, you know, into a career in aviation into like maintain that career. So you really need to enjoy it mm-hmm. if you're going to do it. And, and the people who seem to enjoy their job in aviation are people who love to fly and love airplanes and are passionate about it. I think that's also, that's just indicative of most. It is. Career, you know? I mean, I've actually, so all the guys that you know guys and gals I deployed with like I know multiple pilots who were better F18 pilots than me they were smarter or just naturally better sticks I know multiple of them who are not flying as a career anymore um I know one who left and went to like uh Wharton Business School I know one who left and went to dental school I know I know at least one or two that left and went to medical school like I know a lot of F-18 pilots who they were on the track. They, they, instead of going and instructing in T-6s like I did, they went and instructed in F-18s as F-18 instructors. They were on the path to continue their F-18 career. And they just walked away from it, and they don't even fly airplanes for a living anymore. And um, they've gone and done something else. And there's nothing wrong with that either. I mean, it's good to recognize if that's not your passion, don't stick with it because it requires sacrifices. But it, it's really interesting to me because I love it so much that I'm like, wow, like I can't imagine doing all that hard work and then just walking away from it. And just walking away from it, yeah. yeah. But like you said, if, it, that, if that's not what they want to do, then... Yeah, then they shouldn't just, keep doing it. That's, yeah. That's fine. But I also, I love that whole thing, though, too, about people who do one thing and one thing well for a long time and then mm-hmm. they choose to do something else. I, I've always thought that was cool because it the is. same mechanism that forced them to learn how to fly this aircraft and do these amazing things mm-hmm. is the same mechanism that's now pushing them through medical sure. school. And even, you know, let's see, can you imagine somebody who's like, uh, even does something like, you know, like an ER nurse, like what Will does or an ER doctor or yeah. whatever, like, but they can sort of tap into this. I've been through some, some really, really cool, hard, crazy, hard crazy stuff. stuff. Yeah. 
and I know how to deal with this now that I'm doing this other thing. You know, I know how Absolutely. to deal with it. I, yeah. I, I, I love that. I think that's great. Yeah, yeah. I think it's cool. Yeah. Um, but yeah. Dude, I don't... So they're probably more interesting people than me, actually. You know? <laughs> no, dude. No, no, no. I, uh, well, if you, if you know any of them, you know, yeah. throw them my way. Throw them your you way. I mean? All right, cool. Well, dude, that's all I got. Do you have? Is there anything else that you would like? If everything we talked about. Is there anything else you would want to say, or any other advice, or anything whatsoever? Um. It, anything? Yeah. Nothing. Whatever. Yeah. Mm, anything. Hmm. Okay. I forgot you asked this question on the new podcast or something like it. Man, well, I like should have prepped it, more. Yeah. <laughs> Jeez, man, you had so much time. I to had prep. so much. You time. knew this was coming. <laughs> I know. What did I do? Um, you've got to have your priorities straight in life. Um, that was something that, at times in my career in the F eighteen, caused me to not do as well from a career standpoint in the F eighteen. Um, you know, it caused me to get a less than favorable evaluation from my superiors. Um, because I had my priorities in an order that I did and still do consider appropriate. And, you know, things have turned out just fine. And I am quite happy with the way that life has turned out um, because of those priorities. So um, the way that I've kind of always said it, I guess, is like God, family, country. Like it's not it's not job first. It's not money first. It's not career first it's not country first it's god family country so like those relationships with my savior jesus christ and with my family and leading and protecting and providing for and teaching and training my children and you know those things come first um and then while i was in the military serving you know serving my country in the military um that's still like an important thing to me as a citizen um, but but God and family like those are so much more important and so um, when I was home from deployments you know I would focus on my family because hey I'd just been gone for six months or eight months or I was getting ready to go again um, you know I would when I was at work I was doing my best to train the students that were replacing me but I wasn't going to be available at every hour of every day you know, like when I went home, okay, now it's family time. And, um, and so just keeping those priorities straight, like those are the priorities that have always guided me through my career. And, you know, there's times where it was hard or frustrating because things maybe didn't work out as well with the career as I thought, you know, I might want it to or, or whatever, but ultimately it has worked out, you know, um, I've been married to your sister now for over 15 years and we have three healthy, beautiful, you know, children, and we have solid relationships, and, um, and things are great, and I'm happy with where life is. I, I love that, dude, I, I just love the keeping, like, knowing your priorities, mm -hmm. and that means that you have to be willing to say no mm -hmm. to things that may look like they're going to be a sure. good deal, or a better yeah. deal, but... If it doesn't align with your priorities, then you have to be willing to say no. Because it, mm -hmm. essentially, when you say no to this, you're saying yes, yes to other things. To other things that are sometimes more it's easier to see the no yeah, than yeah. the yes. Yeah, yeah. Um, and it's harder to say no a lot of times. It's really hard to say no sometimes. So yeah, you, you want to make everybody happy. You know? Yeah, you want to, but but you important. have to have your prior and your priorities do shift. You know, sure. and, and, they'll, and, they'll, and, you know, they may change. And, yeah, and there might be like little that. short periods where you go, okay, for this short period we are going to, but it's a slippery slope. If you go, if you, if you change those priorities for long at all. Yeah, like how can, important, you know, how important really, really was really. it or was it really a priority? Yeah. yeah, if you, if you don't go back, like whenever the, the going gets tough, yeah. right? And then like you change your value or your priority. Yeah. How important was that value yeah. or that priority in the first place? Yeah. Probably not too much. Nope. So, all right, dude. Well, that's it. Cool. Appreciate it. Yeah. I love Happy you, man. Happy to do it. Love you too, brother. Cool, man. All right. All right. Bye-bye.